We are in 1 Peter, so go ahead and turn there. 1 Peter chapter, chapter 3. Turn in your Bible. The sound of pages rustling is the preacher's greatest encouragement. Though since half of you are using an app, can't even hear it. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 12. Please follow along in your Bible as I read. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, but his ears are open to their pr- and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Father, as we get into this text this morning, we ask that you would indeed open our eyes to your truth this morning. That we might see it, that we might enjoy it, that you might encourage us in our seasons of difficulty. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was walking up McMeckin Street a few years ago toward my house. And this scene, just for whatever reason, sticks in my mind some probably three years later. And as I'm walking up the street, a a woman uh, passes me who looks worn out, stressed, and frazzled. And she looks like she's in a hurry. And as she's passing me, I say, hello, how are you doing? And her response is, I'm blessed. And in my wicked, evil mind, I thought, does she even know what she's talking about? I'm blessed. How frivolously we use that word, I'm blessed. How are you doing? I'm blessed. Have you even thought about it? Do you know what it means to be blessed? Do you understand the theological weight of that word, blessed? Now, according to a lot of our Christian standards today, if you walk into a lot of churches and listen to a lot of pulpits, and you hear a sermon on the blessed life, she actually wouldn't fit their category of what it means to be blessed. Let's break it down. She was walking, so that probably means that she doesn't have a car, right? I was walking at the time, and I didn't have a car. She was frazzled and tired. That means that she's probably uh, lacking the help that she needs, and she's frustrated because of that. She's in a hurry. That means that she's probably late to wherever she's heading. Now, you listen to a lot of uh, talk on being blessed today, and she just doesn't seem to fit that category. Because according to many, blessed means that you've got a good career that you're not running late to. Right? It means that you have plenty of help, and so you're not frazzled and stressed and tired. It means that you have a car. So you don't have to walk to where you're going. 
Some of you can say amen to that, right? So if that's what blessed means, then we can say that this lady is definitely not blessed. All right? What is the good life? That is our topic today. If you're into beer commercials, the good life is having a few drinks with some friends at the tiki bar as the sun sets. Or if you're into R. Kelly, it's the fact that the freaking weekend is here. And it's about to have you time to have some, some fun. All right. If you're into country music, the good life is the fact that it's five o'clock somewhere. All right? You guys don't like country? I have to I have to contextualize it for Brandon, because he's from Dallas and gotta contextualize my sermon so he understands what I'm talking about here. What is the good life? How does the Bible define the good life? Do we understand as a culture what the good life is? The Bible says that you can have the good life even when times are bad. That's the phrase that I want you to keep in your mind. I want to stick it there, and I want you to remember that. You can have the good life according to the biblical worldview even when things are bad. But in order to do so, we must radically redefine what it means to be blessed. We must radically redefine what it means to have the good life, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. Now, the good life we see has three dimensions here. The first is that the good life blesses your church. The second is that the good life blesses your enemy. And the third is that the good life is blessed by God. So let's dive into it. Looking here at the first couple words, verse 8, he says, likewise, or finally rather, all of you. So who is he addressing? All. Correct. Thank you. So he has already addressed uh, the servants under unjust masters. He's addressed wives. He's addressed husbands. And now he says, finally, everybody in the room, all right, the whole church. Now we could say specifically here that he is addressing the church, the brothers and sisters who have gathered and they're listening to this being read in their local church. So finally, he says, all of you, the church, we must first remember that God in his redemptive plan is not just saving individuals, but rather God is saving individuals into a new family. And we are then part of this redeemed family of God divided into local expressions of that, a.k.a. the, the community of faith here, the local church. So finally, he says, for all of you, everybody that's listening in, in the church. And then he begins to give these unusual characteristics of what this community looks like. Now, one thing I want you to note as we go through this is this. When we first think of the good life, we often default to thinking of a life in which everybody serves me, in which my needs are met, in which I, a life in which I'm not tired, maybe, or in a life in which uh, my emotional needs are met, and so therefore I feel good. What we're seeing here, and this is the radical redefinition of the good life and the blessed life. As a church, living this out, the good life is not a life defined by my needs being met by everyone else serving me, but rather the good life is a life of 
serving everyone else. All right, so look at these five unusual characteristics that the church is to be known for. Number one, he says, have unity of mind. Now the devil in the Garden of Eden, if you remember the story, the first thing he did was he twisted the Word of God. He said to Eve, he said, did God, did God really say that? Is that really what he meant by that? Like, isn't there some kind of contextual understanding here? Can't we somehow work our way around this very difficult uh, uh, command that God gave you? And so the devil then begins to twist the word of God and division enters into humanity. So unity of mind means that we are aware of the fact that the devil wants to twist the word of God in our midst. So on one hand, this does mean that there is a sense of in, uh, doctrinal unity within the church in which we strive to study the word of God and with grace endeavor to help our brothers and sisters come to a better understanding of God's word in this warm fellowship. C.S. Lewis, actually, he was drawn to Christianity because of unity. He looked at all of the church uh, theologians and the, the people who, uh, who churches today look at. And so he looked at the early church fathers and he looked at Augustine and then he went on and he looked at medieval era and he looked at uh, the reformers such as John Calvin and Zwingli and Luther and then on into the 19th century. And what he said that he saw was great unity for 2,000 years around the central claims of who Christ is. And it was attractive then to C.S. Lewis the unity that he found in the church. Now, some churches will say doctrine divides. Have you ever heard that term? We shouldn't talk about doctrine in the church because it divides. And so we're going we're gonna to try to find unity this way through closing the Bible and setting it aside. Now, notice churches that do that are actually divided. You can look at a lot of mainline denominations right now and see divisions all through them because they have lost the unity of the faith. As an example, the Unitarian Church. All right, so they are the church that says we are going to be united. It's in our name, Unitarian. And so therefore, in order to be united, we can't talk about doctrine, we can't have creeds, no confessions, we're going to put them all out because that's how we're going to achieve unity. What's happening now within the last couple years is division in the Unitarian Church as they try to answer this question, can an atheist be a pastor of a Unitarian Church? And it's creating division. There's division all throughout. Why? It's because they have nothing to stand on. And so now they have these crazy ideas. Well, maybe an atheist. Why not? You see? So on one hand, there's, there is a sense in which we should, and it's right to strive for as much as possible in, in the warm sense of community, recognizing that we can't grab someone's conscience and change it, but we should strive to understand the word of God rightly as a body. But it's more than that. Because you could have a group of people who agree, all right, they have the right theology, you could say, yet they're still, uh, they're still lacking the unity of mind. How so? Well, unity of mind is much bigger than just simply doctrinal unity. Unity of mind, let's think of it in terms of the body. If my hand uh, had its own mind, and my mouth had its own mind, 
and my mouth says, hand, I'm hungry. Could you please take that fork and feed me? And the hand says, no, I'm busy, you know, playing with the phone over here. And the mouth says, but it's been two days. All right, can you please put something in my mouth? Now there is division in the body because there, there is no unity of mind. Does that make sense? And so in the church now, as we are called the body of Christ, members of the body, what does it mean to have unity of mind? It means that the hand says, my petty ambitions of playing with my phone need to be set aside. My own desires need to be set aside. And I need to pick up this fork and serve the mouth for the good of the body. Otherwise, in two or three weeks or sooner, the hand is going to be dead. You see, so unity of mind means that we set aside our own desires for the greater good of the body. And so then this impacts every aspect of our life. Did you make that decision because that's what you wanted to make? Because of your own selfish desire? Or did you make that decision because it would be the best for the church? How many of us can say that the decisions we make in our life are made with first the first question being, how will this serve and benefit the local church? You're offered a few extra hours at work on Sunday morning. And you don't necessarily need the money, but it wouldn't hurt. Have you thought through the reality of, of how this decision could affect the church if you're not there when the church gathers for worship? Do you realize that your very presence in this body matters? The fact that you're here this morning encourages the person next to you. It encouraged whoever it was that you shook hands with this morning during the welcome time. Unity of mind means we place aside our own petty wants and desires and first think, well, how does this affect the greater good of the body, the life of the body? Going on, he then says that you are to have sympathy. Now, this is more than just simply a dainty white Hallmark card with pink lace around the edges, okay? Sympathy. What is sympathy? What is sympathy in the scriptures? We see in Hebrews chapter 4 an interesting teaching on Christ as the sympathetic one. Here in Hebrews 4, Christ is presented as the high priest. But then he goes on and he says, he's not a high priest that cannot, what, do you remember? Sympathize, thank you. He's not a high priest that cannot sympathize with you. Now how can Christ sympathize with us? He goes on and he says, it's because he's been tempted. In every way you have been, yet without sin, which means then that he has experienced the greatest temptations of all. Because you do realize that when you give in to temptation, the temptation is over and, and it doesn't hurt anymore. So Christ actually experienced more temptation and greater temptation, more painful temptation than you've ever experienced. And so when you're going through the pain of temptation, you're resisting sin, Christ is saying, I know exactly what that feels like and I made it through to the other side. And so can you. He can sympathize with you. 
And so then the writer of Hebrews goes on and he says that he is a high priest who can sympathize with us. And here's the reasoning. He says, so that we might have confidence in him and then draw near to him. So the core of sympathy here means then that we are to be like Christ in the sense that we can understand who our brother and sister is, what they're walking through, with the hope that, with the, with the so that, that they might have confidence in us, that they might have confidence in the Christ in us, in the word that we are sharing with them, so they might trust our words, so that they might see them Christ. So that's true sympathy. When we say, I understand, or me too, can be some of, some of the most powerful words in the English language. And going on, so we're to have a unity of mind. He says we're to have sympathy. And then third, he says we are to be a people with a brotherly love. A brotherly love. Now, we tend to think of love uh, only connected with emotions, right? So, for instance, we sort of say love uh, is a feeling of greater emotions than like. Does that make sense? So you might remember like uh, back in seventh grade, do you like her? Do you like him or do you love her? You see, and sort of this progression and I'm moving from like I like you to I think I love you. Like I have a lot of feelings for you. Forget feelings, all right? When you think of brotherly love, take those feelings and just kick them out, all right? Now, be careful They're going to come back, but that is not how we are going to determine whether or not we love someone. Does that make sense? Brotherly love at the core does not simply mean that all of you have great feelings for one another. Some of you might actually say, I don't even like this person, so how can I love this person, right? So what does it mean then to have love, brotherly love? At the core it means this, it's this recognition that we are born again as children of God. That's number one. So we, we are brothers and sisters in the sense that we, have all, we all share the same father, and so we can then go to, say, Papua and meet Christians there and find more unity and love with them than we ever could with our next-door neighbor who doesn't know Christ. Brotherly love. It's a love that as soon as it, there's a need known, it postures itself in a way to meet that need. It's a love that gives. Jesus put it this way. He says, greater love has no man than this, than a man who lays down his life for his brother. So since brotherly, brotherly love at the core doesn't have, it has nothing to do with feelings, at least at first, though feelings often follow as you get to know someone, What this means is, is that in a church, we might not even know each other well, yet be able to love one another with a brotherly love. So let me give you an example of this. You might be thinking through uh, those that you've been interacting with at church recently, and you might think of a face and a name of someone who you haven't seen in a long time. And you think, huh, I I wonder if they're doing okay. But then you tell yourself, well, I don't know them. I've never spoke with them. So therefore, I can't love them. Wrong. Brotherly love can love strangers. Brotherly love can get on the phone and can call and can say, hey, I've missed you. Is everything okay? 
I know we haven't spoke very much, but we should get to know each other. That's brotherly love. So we are to be a people of brotherly love. And moving on, he says, you are also to be a people who have a tender heart. Now, literally, in the original language, this means tender bowels. I love this church because they have such tender bowels there. It's like a whole new meaning to a compliment, right? Brother, you have tender bowels. Well, essentially, this means in your guts. That's the word that we would use today. What it means is when, when the, what the word bowels was used, or guts, it's, it's basically saying in the very depths of who you are. In the deepest sense of your being, you are tender, meaning there is a compassion there. Compassion would actually be a great translation of this. You have a compassion that stems from the greatest depths of your being. In Ephesians, it says, be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another. So one aspect of this compassion that means that we are quick to forgive. So if someone in the church wrongs you, tender-heartedness means I am quick and ready and longing to forgive you. That's tender-hearted. It also means that there is a compassion of sharing and giving and serving whenever and wherever possible. Meaning, today when we think of like compassion, we, we often think of just sort of the Instagram compassion. You know what I'm saying? Like doing something for someone just so you can take a picture of it and put it on Instagram and get a whole bunch of likes. All right? Tender heartedness knows nothing of that kind of compassion. It actually doesn't care about being paraded. It doesn't care about being praised. It doesn't care if anybody ever finds out. It's a compassion that is part of your being that gives going on. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tenderhearted, and then lastly, we are to be hum- have a humble mind. Now, this would truly be radical in a defend-your-honor culture of ancient Greece. To not worry about defending your honor, but to have a humble mind. You see, with Christianity, we live in this great irony. God is the creator and sustainer of the world. The holy God who has loved us and has looked down on us with compassion and who has provided a means of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And as he looks down on us, what does he see? He sees us worrying about our petty dreams. He sees us crying about not having enough. He sees us wondering if, 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 uh, if we're going to feel better. You see, God looks down on us and what he sees through his, through his eyes is just a whole bunch of petty tears. When the reality is that God, the great irony, is that he loves you. And you say, but wait a second, you don't understand. My dreams are fading. But God loves you. You say, but wait a second, people are talking bad about me. But God loves you. Do you see the irony here? And when we understand his great love, it leads us to humility. Peter learned this the hard way. Jesus told Peter, your insecurities, essentially, putting words into Jesus' mouth, terrible thing to do, but your insecurities are going to catch up with you, Peter. This is what Jesus said, you're going to deny me. Peter said, never, I would never deny you. And what does Peter do? The pressure is turned up. 
the heat is turned on, his insecurities, his fears catch up with him, and Peter denies his Christ. When Peter talks about humility, he knows what he's talking about. The humility under a Christ who has died for you and who loves you. So we are to be then, as a people, humble-minded. Now, this is the stuff that makes a church stick together. These five characteristics, I call them unusual because they are unusual in our world. We live in a world where people are flighty. We live in a world where if, if, uh, if your feelings are violated, you run away. We live in a world where people pick and choose their friends based on feeling, based on skin color or preference. We live in a world that lacks commitment to anything. We live in a world that values our own self-interest over the greater good of the community. These are the characteristics that sustain the community. Paul says if you want to have a church where the good life is experienced that sustains and that is powerful and active and that can push up against and press against the gates of hell, these are the characteristics that this church must have. It's a church in which people can get hurt or there's problems or people could be forgotten or ignored and they don't leave but they bless it's a church in which a christian says instead of but no one did it for me they say i will do it for them it's a church that calls every member to serve the greater good of the body so this is a countercultural community. And what's more is that this in the Bible is lifted up against society so that society might see what a cultural or a countercultural community under the authority of God looks like. It's a demonstration. It's a glimpse, if you would, a, a mere glimpse into heaven. This is what, what we are called to. Now, going on, we're not just simply called to bless those within us. But look where he goes next. He says, bless your enemies. Bless your enemies. Look at verse 8 and 9. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So a wife makes fun of her husband in public. What's he to do? Bless her. Husband forgets to take out the trash. What's she to do? Bless him. Roommate leaves dishes in the sink. What are you to do? Bless him. Coworker blames you for something she didn't do. What do you do? Bless you, child. You get the picture here. Bless those who harm you. Bless your enemy. Now, this cuts at the core of society. It cuts at the core of our society. I've stood over the body of a, of a young man who's head was swollen like a bowling ball because of a bullet that entered it. And as we're standing around his dying body and as, as his mother is weeping over his, his body, all I can think of is this. Retaliation is killing the young men of Baltimore. We have a culture in our city of retaliation, getting back and getting back harder. 
About a year ago, there was another man that was shot and killed not too far from here. And in defense of the shooter, it was said, look, you just can't allow someone to talk to you, talk to you like that. You just can't let somebody get away with that. Friends, we live in a culture of violence. And maybe you're not pulling out a gun on somebody. But don't tell me that you don't have this desire to get back, to retaliate, to get even. Yet the Word of God says, bless those who are your enemies. So what does this mean to bless them? Well, on one hand, it means to speak highly of them. We could go there. But more consistent with the pages of Scripture, to bless someone else is to ask God to show His grace and favor on them in their life. Now, how is this possible? Someone harms you. How is it possible for you to pray, God, please show them favor? Please show them grace. How is this possible? Well, it's possible because this is the very heart of the gospel. This is the very nature of what it means to be a Christian. When the disciples tried to call down fire on the enemies, Jesus said, hold up. You guys don't even know what you're talking about. You see, Jesus has introduced this epoch of redemption in which he has, in the new covenant, shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And so being a Christian recognizes that I am a sinner, that I am guilty, that I am in des- uh, deserving hell. And Christ died for me, and now all who are part of his family are called to be missionaries. So there's a missionary call to everyone, even those who have people pointing guns at their head. We are to ask God to show them the same mercy that he showed us and that they might be in heaven with us one day. How is that possible? It's possible because we understand that there is no sin that goes unpunished. The sins that people have committed against you, they will either be punished for all of eternity in hell or those very sins were placed onto Christ on the cross and he bore every bit of God's wrath for the sin committed against you. Stephen in the Bible, we've talked about him before, he was elected as a deacon of the church. A good young man, innocent by all worldly standards, Deserves nothing, uh, nothing wrong to happen to him. Because of his faith, there's an angry mob. You know the story? They attack Stephen. They drag him out, and they pick up stones to stone the young man. And as stones are being hurled at him, flying through the air, crushing his bones, he looks up to God and he prays his final prayer. And then in uh, verse 60, I believe it is, of Acts chapter 7, it says that Stephen falls on his knees and his final words, as he falls on his knees, knees, he says, God, do not hold this sin against them. It actually says he cried that in a loud voice, so they all heard it. Lord, do not hold these sins against them. Now a lesser man would say, Burn in hell, all of you! <laughs> right? 
in this moment, as people are stoning him, he's praying to God that God would show them mercy and that they would be in heaven with him one day. Well, there's a young man, Saul, who's standing. He's watching all of this. He's kind of overseeing it in many ways. It says, Saul, the very next line, Saul gave his approval of this execution. Friends, God heard the prayer of Stephen that day. And he poured out blessings on the head of Saul. Saul had an encounter with the risen Christ. His name was changed to Paul, and he wrote a good portion of the New Testament. I would have loved to have been there in heaven that day when Paul and Stephen saw each other. How could Stephen do that? It's because Stephen was a Christian. There's no other explanation. It's because he's a Christian. That's what Christians do. Christians bless their enemies. As stones are being hurled at them, as they're losing their life, they say, God, please show this person mercy. Friends, do you want to see your enemies in heaven one day? Those who have wronged you, those who have hurt you in ways beyond comprehension, is it your hope that God would forgive them of their sins, show them mercy, that you might spend all of eternity with them. If you're a Christian, you can say yes to that. Now, why do I put it so strongly in that sense? Well, look at the next line. We'll close with this. He says, so do this, repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, do not repay, I'm sorry, bless, for to this you are called, that you might obtain a blessing. And then he quotes Psalm 34, which is about Oh, I'll just read it. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those that do evil. Now, he's saying here, bless those who harm you. Bless your enemies so that you will be blessed. That's what he says. Now, a question I ask is, does this mean then that we're earning our salvation if we bless our enemies? Well, the answer is, is absolutely not, because Peter has already said that your salvation is an inheritance, something given to you, not something that you earn. You are then just simply reborn, but ah, there's the key. You're reborn. He's saying this in the same way that the Sermon on the Mount says, um, blessed are those who are poor in spirit for they will inherit the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that if you act in a way that is poor in spirit that God will give you the kingdom. No, what it means is is that being poor in spirit is a characteristic of a kingdom person. And in the same sense here, in the context of being reborn, what he's saying is, is that the person who forgives their enemy and then blesses them instead of retaliation who seeks their good, who might even speak highly of them, and at the core prays that God would show mercy and favor on that person, this is the person who is in Christ, the very Christ, as he was hanging on the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, you are reborn. Now, how do you, have, how do you know that you have physical life? How do you know that you were born? Well, you know that you have physical life because there is evidence that you're alive. You're breathing, you're warm, right? In the same way, how do you know that you have spiritual rebirth? 
How do you know that you've been born again? Well, there's evidence, there's signs. And what he's saying here is that a sign of being reborn is that you bless those who persecute you. And then he goes on and explains the blessing. He says, and they will see, they will love life, and they will see good days. So that means that there will be good days. That means that there are good days in which the wine is poured and the steak is cut, all right? That means that when we are having a feast, we can say, this is a blessing from God that we don't deserve. What a, what a wonderful God. It's a taste of heaven. Yet good days, according to the Bible, are not limited to the beer commercials or to R. Kelly or whoever. Good days are not limited to good days in society's understanding of good days. What is a good day in Acts? A good day in Acts is when Paul and Silas are in chains, in prison. They've got cuffs around their wrists and around their ankles, and they're singing psalms of praise, and they have joy in their heart. For Paul and Silas, a good day was being in jail. You see, for the Christian, our circumstances do not determine whether or not our day is good or bad. Our circumstances do not determine whether or not we have the good life. So what does? Well, I've been racking my brain all week to try to think of one word to describe what blessed, the blessed life is. And I came up with one. Here is the word. Christ. Christ. The life of Christ is the blessed life. The joy that Christ brings in the midst of being in prison is the blessed life. The peace that we have when our life is frazzled and stressed and we're late to work and we're walking is the blessed life. Since when was Christ not enough for you? You say, but you don't understand my life. You don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand how everything's falling apart around me, friend. Is Christ enough for you? But you don't know the pain that I'm going through. You don't know the worries that I have. I don't know if I'm going to make it to my next birthday. <laughs> I might lose my job. I might lose my apartment. Friends, since when was Christ not enough? The blessed life is a life with Christ. Have you ever called on his name? Have you ever called on his name and found the joy that is yours in Christ? You see, Christ will give us blessings in the world's eyes as we enjoy good days, quote-unquote, and as we enjoy the bad days, we can be blessed in the Lord's eyes. But there is a day coming that we all have our eyes on in which Christ comes again. And on that day, all tears are wiped away. There is no more death, crying, or pain. For the old order, it says, is put away. And we now forever and ever have all the prosperity that you can imagine looking into the face of Christ. You see, heaven is not Christ plus prosperity. Heaven is Christ equaling prosperity. Does that make sense? And so maybe the lady on Meccan Street was indeed blessed. 
She's tired. She doesn't have enough help. She doesn't have a car. She's frazzled. She's stressed. She's late to work. How are you doing? I'm blessed. Maybe she's blessed. Not because everything's working out for her, but because she has Christ. That's my prayer for each one of us today. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you point us to the very face of Christ so that we, know what we might know what the true good life is, a peace and joy that passes all circumstances, a hope in Christ that never fades. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.